Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Senior Editor at Food & Wine. <laughs> A special guest in the background, my dogs, Ogdred and Penelope. Uh, this is just how we're doing it these days. Um, but my other guest, who I could not be more excited for, uh, Kelly Fields to be joining us. Um, I, I'm just going to say it up front. She's one of my favorite people on the planet for a whole lot of reasons. And if you don't know her, uh, already, you're just kind of fall in love with her over the course of this conversation. And especially when you pick up a copy of her, um, her new cookbook, um, which let's, let's not delay any further. Hey, Kelly, how you doing? Good morning. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, what a treat. Uh, we actually, I, I'll also note that this is not uh, the first conversation we we had. We um, we actually sat down and did a podcast uh, about a year ago or so. And uh, just so much has changed in the world. It's like, it's like, that's an entirely different reality we were living in. Yeah, I think that was a different lifetime for everyone, really. Yeah, you were you were uh, sweating the cookbook <laughs> during during oh, that time yeah. as well. <laughs> I just handed in a, a draft of I don't know or or however many recipes uh, it was. This thing is good. God, it's gorgeous. Uh, I, I I assumed it was going to be, and then I saw the the finished reality of it, and it, and I got really, really emotional because I know so much of what has gone into it. And at the time we're talking, we are um, a little over a week out from uh, publication. Yeah, how much? Like it, comes, it comes out on September 8th. So. Okay. So you don't have it down to the hour. Yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, I, I can't obsess that much about it. So I'm just going to let it go out into the world the way it goes. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I had a book come out, uh, you know, almost four years ago. And um, the emotional process of bringing such a thing into the world is is something that I think could stand to be talked about a lot more because there is all of the, the pre-publication, well, obviously the work, and which can be really solitary and, and grueling. There's uh, the imposter syndrome <laughs> that goes into, why am I qualified to write a book? Absolutely. <laughs> Oh yeah, then there's we're going to dive into all of this. There's the feeling of of futility once you have turned it all in and you're just twiddling, waiting for all of the, mm -hmm. the next steps of it. Then there's the publication, and then um, uh, there's crushing depression after it comes out too. So yeah, we. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, really. I'm looking forward to all of it right now. Let's do it. <laughs> it's really great. I just so folks get a, a sense of sort of who you are. I want to talk about how we met, and we met in a moment of real compassion um, that I, mm -hmm. I to this day think about and treasure. Um, this must have been 2011. Um, and oh, was it that long ago? I I think it was. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah, I think that must have been 2011 because it was like Valentine's Day weekend or <laughs> around that time. Um, it was my first time in New Orleans. I was working at CNN at the time and we used to have these, what we called secret suppers, where we would, um, we, we would identify a chef or chefs and a, uh, and, and some CNN personalities. And then this, this was such a great thing. We would get people from that particular city 
uh, invite, have them save the date, not tell them exactly what was happening, just that we were bringing them to dinner. And then it would all be revealed when they showed up at the restaurant or somebody's home. And, uh, we went to, it was at James Carville and Mary Madeline's house. <laughs> and, uh, the, 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 um, head chef was a chef we will not name. Um, but yeah, I got to meet you there. And, uh, it was, I'm, I'm remembering everybody who was at the table. Leah Chase was at the table mm-hmm. and everybody sat in, in awe there. Brian Bat was there. There were, um, local, you know, farmers and, and, and fisher people and, uh, musicians. And we all sat around the, the table and talked about what food meant to the recovery of New Orleans, um, mm-hmm. which is where you are, are based. And as I recall, my, my, do- my dog, um, had to have emergency surgery that particular night. Um, and I was so worried and I could barely speak and Mary Madeline led a, led a prayer for my dog. And, uh, you brought out, I had never met you before and you brought out this hummingbird cake mm-hmm. that you made. It was absolutely transformative. This dinner was one of the highlights of my life. And the next morning walking out of my hotel, you hear a voice from down an alley saying, Hey, how's your dog? And it was you. And it was a city where I didn't really know anyone. It was my first time there. And this this person who had made this dessert the night before that was something I'd never had before um, in the middle of this, this really enchanted evening uh, yelled out of the distance asking how my dog was. And that's mm-hmm. who you are. That is... That yeah. is that, you are you were dogless at the time and now you're incredibly yeah. dog <laughs> yeah I, didn't, I did not even know at the time that i was a dog person but <laughs> here we are. who were you in 2011 kelly fields uh i was a lot uh i was a lot different than i am now i think but yeah there, I, I, I mean i think that moment in particular was a uh, like a sneak preview a little light uh coming through the cracks to what was um so yeah i for it I've, I've had the pleasure of your friendship for all of this time. And it's really been a joy seeing you, you know, really, uh, you know, understand your worth in a lot of ways and the, and the value that you bring and who you are as a human and a leader. And so at that particular time, you were the pastry chef at, uh, August and at, uh, other restaurants as well. How many, how many restaurants were you overseeing, uh, pastry? Um... It, it got up to right around that point about 19 different dessert menus around uh around new orleans and um, were you sleeping yeah. ever sleeping no yes <laughs> at the time what was your no, self not very much there was none <laughs> there was none I, I thought that working that hard and um you know drowning myself in pastry and the desire to be the best was self-care so that's, yeah, that's where I was operating. Yeah, and you also had um, you're you're from Louisiana, yes. I am. Fr- well, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, right. Yes, I was very okay. Yes, but you um, you you worked your way to uh, New Orleans. The, the reason that uh, we were throwing this particular uh, dinner in uh, New Orleans it was an anniversary of of Katrina. And mm-hmm. you had been in New Orleans at the time and, uh, and you evacuated. Correct. 
Yeah. Uh, was, I mean, ironic enough, this is the 15th anniversary of the storm today and tomorrow. So. Oh my goodness. Um, that had to yeah. with, with everything going on in the universe and Louisiana being under siege again. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you, when did you get to Louisiana? What year were it? Was it? Um, I came in 1996 and then <laughs> left in 2000 to go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Came back in 2002 up until Katrina. Yeah. And when you left, did you think you were coming back? Yes. When I left for the storm, I um, yeah. threw my computer up high. I, I had uh, like three guitars at the time. I put them on top of my bed. I literally emptied whatever was in the dryer and put it in a suitcase. And uh, that's what I evacuated with. Yeah. And how long were you gone? Um, I made it back to the city in like mid to late October to mm-hmm. my house for the first time um, just to see what, if anything, was um, was worth getting, which was yeah. very little. Yeah. Um, and then I was gone. I came back to New Orleans in 2010 mm-hmm. was when it when it finally made sense for me to be here again. Yeah. And were you doing pastry this whole time? Where did you go when you evacuated and how did you take care of yourself during that time? Um, I ended up in Asheville, North Carolina for um, a little under a year right after yeah. the storm and was the pastry chef at the Inn on the Inn on the Biltmore Estate. Um, Ooh, and, yeah. you know, Asheville is a lovely town and beautiful and the people were amazing. And it was a really great place to sort of land and sort of process what what was happening what had happened and what needs to happen yeah um and then i i traveled a little bit and i went and um spent some time in israel i went from rome to egypt and spent some time in israel and um visited friends that i'd made through cooking um around the world and then i moved to san francisco um spent a little time in scotland and then left sam went back to san francisco and then left San Francisco in the end of 2009. I went to New Zealand and wandered around New Zealand for a couple of months before coming back home. <laughs> in the field. Yeah. And were you baking this whole time? Were you picking up knowledge? What was, uh, what, what was, so there was a plan. <laughs> there's, there's a plan afoot. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there was so much a plan as in just like, I did what I knew how to do. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that boiled down to baking. And the only time I wasn't, really baking was in New Zealand and I was doing more, you know, like I worked on an olive farm picking olives or, you know, did a bunch of odd jobs throughout the country just to learn about apples or learn about olive oil or learn about, you know, I did horseback riding uh, tours at one point. So, you know, little jack of all trades, really. Yeah. Did you take yourself seriously? Did you understand your talent during this time? Um, I took myself seriously in a way that had nothing to do with talent. <laughs> <laughs> just sort of like <laughs> I took myself seriously in a like a more ego centric sort of way than um really understanding what I was doing or why I was doing it or mm-hmm. what made me good at it or that I even was good at it in the way that was important to me yeah have you always been good at it um I think so I mean my mom you know my mom baked almost every weekend growing up and I was always by her side and learning, uh, 
learning how she did what she did or are you know there was the the time we made carrot cake for the first time and I literally was on the floor of the kitchen crying because I don't <laughs> understand why you would ruin a cake with carrots but um <laughs> it was such a natural part of growing up in in my family and my mom is always you know she's always preserving and canning or pickling or making jams or baking so it was just it was just a skill set I was born into it feels like now yeah, and you've got some powerful grandmother energy going on there too. Oh, for sure, for sure. But see, my mom's mom was an amazing baker, which is where my mom gets it from. Uh, and my dad's mom was just really sassy and stubborn and sarcastic, and you know that's where I got the the <laughs> energy to do everything out of spite and just you know keep keep going and being successful despite everybody's you know doubts about me. Oh, spite energy is really a powerful thing, you know. I spite energy, anger energy. I keep thinking of that um, PIL song "Rise," where the chorus is just anger is an energy over and over and over again. And I've really felt that recently, and I've definitely found a lot of uh, solace, respite, um, energy getting out in in my own personal baking <laughs> during during mm -hmm. the pandemic during this uh political time and you know for you i you know i've had the pleasure of having you know a lot so you know a lot of your food you know baked and savory and, and all this and i i always feel like i can you know taste you know the emotional aspect of it too because it's you know it's it's technically so excellent but there is also this other kind of thing in it did you always mm -hmm. have you always been able to value the role that sort of emotion and feeling and all that plays in um in in the food that you make because i you know i know you you've come up through some you know fairly like male-centric kitchens that maybe yeah. were more about like marine precision <laughs> than about any sort of, you know, the, the, the humanity that goes into the food. Have you been able to right. value that or is that, has that been a process for you? It's definitely, it's definitely been a process. Um, and it's something that I think, you know, only in the last probably three years have I really been able to see it and taste it and really understand it for myself like I was not for most of my career at a place where it was like anything emotional emotional or vulnerable or any all of that stuff was banned right yeah like that's yeah. stuff you didn't talk about that's yeah. stuff you didn't feel and explicitly banned not just like oh maybe you shouldn't but it's stated like you know, no crying, no whatever. You can't. Right, right. No, you lose your job. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, as I got to a place where I had the privilege to sort of start taking care of myself and start getting to know myself away from food professionally yeah. and start with just me, you know, as that sort of bleeds into professional life and, and baking and writing a book and leading people like, there's just all this unlearning that's sort of just, I feel like I'm just getting started of what it means to just cook food that feels nourishing, that actually nourishes in the same way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can say that like some of the most comforting moments that I've, I've had have been sitting in Willa Jean and, um, 
you know, I, there was, you, you make this dish called a hangover bowl. And, uh, and I had to ask for a modification on it because of, you know, my gut issues. Mm -hmm. But so it's usually grits, but you were willing to do it on, on top of a greens for me. Can you talk through this particular bowl and why it is so nourishing? The genesis of this thing? I mean, it's just like, for me, it's like the stuff that sticks to your gut and absorbs whatever you need to sort of like move on with. Uh, in New Orleans, that happens to be alcohol a lot of the time for a lot of people that come eat here. Um, and I found that a lot of my staff would come in and like fix themselves a little bowl of like the trimmings of other dishes, which turned into the hangover bowl. I'm like, if everybody sort of finds himself eating this, then this is something that people want to eat right yeah and so we you know dressed it up a little bit and put it on and a menu on the menu as, as yeah with flowers because i was told people hate that so i just do it all the time um <laughs> I that like is it. true though i put flowers on everything because i was told it was too girly and frilly and nobody wants frilly food oh can we talk about this for a second like <laughs> yeah. like, like like pastry which to me is absolutely equal footing it's it's one billion percent on par with you know savory cooking and stuff and it gets shunted off into what they call like you know like like the pink ghetto or there's there's some terminology yep. pink dungeon is that it like uh, pink, yeah all of all of all of it <laughs> and I've, I've heard it called every every iteration that you could think of to try to be an insult towards women in a kitchen yeah yeah women and, and queer people yeah. it, and and it, it's just slung in this in this way when it's it's really trying to diminish the power of pastry is freaking hard it's so yeah. it's it's science it's art it's it's emotion it's all of these things it is it is so rigorous we we've just done this big lamination feature in food and mm -hmm. wine and watching that come together like oh my god the labor of it and yeah. also there's an upcoming feature with Gatley Fields <laughs> and Kate Heading oh, yeah. in an upcoming issue that I've seen. The layout is gorgeous. They're working on it right now. It's a really beautiful thing. So folks listening to this, look forward to that. But there is in a lot of, let's talk about the before times, um, in, in so many kitchens where pastry is just relegated to this afterthought and made to feel really diminished because it is, you know, so often the realm of, of women and of queer men. And mm -hmm. some, and there is, and it was this sort of like acceptable rhetoric that happened in kitchens for a long time. Can, I don't want to dwell on pain points too much here, but can you talk through some of that? I just think that, you know, like, you know, I think most kitchens, especially when I started cooking, were driven on testosterone and ego and a place that required a lot of patience and a lot of organization and a lot of planning and time. Like that's a pastry kitchen. Yeah. And most savory cooks I've ever worked with or worked for don't have the patience for pastry. <laughs> I've seen what like chef desserts are like. <laughs> oh, there's a very, like you can, I can certainly, and I think most people in food can go to a, a restaurant and know that those are chef desserts or they're pastry desserts. It's, uh, um, it's bread pudding. <laughs> yeah. But as you know, like in hindsight, it's just, they can't, and they could never do what I did 
Yeah. And that's a threat. Me being a woman is a threat. Me being gay is a threat. Me being like rough around the edges in a way that they don't really know how to define was a threat. And um, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Well, you, you know, that's, you... that's on them. It's not on me anymore. I, I like, I took it personally for d- a decade or two and what, I just don't what, anymore. What did you have to do to get through that? Oh, a whole lot of therapy. <laughs> I mean, like at the time, like sort of pre-therapy, like how did you deal with that on the day to day? I just tried to be better every day and sort of, you know, it's that whole, the fuel of spite and, <laughs> you know, you, you think that you can do this and you think that I am lesser than because I'm dealing with chocolate instead of truffles, <laughs> but let me show up tomorrow and, and make something even more technically difficult or even more complex that I know that you can't do. I mean, like that, that was daily. It was like, how do I show up and prove again how much better I am? That's so exhausting. And that is, and I hear that from like so many of my friends who are people of color and women of color and anybody mm-hmm. who is, has been made to feel othered in a kitchen or in life. Like there's, there is that harder, harder work you have to do. And, you know, there's zero good about this pandemic. Um, and and the one thing that I, you know, sort of, well, I hope many things coming out of this, but I really, really, really hope that this acts as a reset for, Mm -hmm. to make a more equitable, you know, restaurant system, because people are just, people have been failed this, this whole Mm -hmm. time. Anybody sort of outside of, you know, this, this particular, uh, you know, demographic is, is, is just hosed (laughs) during, during all of this and really hoping for a reset. Um, but also you, you caused your own reset in a way when you opened, you know, your own place and, um, figured out how to, you know, set up a, a culture there. Can you talk through some of the process of like defining a culture at a place when you're, you know, when you're coming out of, of somewhere else with a very particular way of being? Yeah. How do you establish I that? mean, I'm still, I mean, we're, we just turned five a couple of weeks ago and we're oh, still figuring out. Yeah. Thank you. We're still trying to figure out every day what that means and how to establish, like we still have not reached, a place where any of us are happy or any of us can be like, Oh, look what we did because there's so much work to be done. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that we can do, the biggest thing I've tried to do, and, you know, a lot of times I've failed at it, but I keep coming back and trying is to be open to hear and see and learn the ways that I fail or that we fail as a management team or that we fail as a space or, you know, whatever, and really listen to and believe when people talk about their experiences here, of what didn't feel good for them or how they, how they experienced a certain, you know, issue or situation and really just try to just keep doing better. And that sort of is our culture right now because we don't, we don't have all the answers. We get it wrong more than we get it right, but we, I am, and my team is committed to continue to, to, to put one foot in front of the other and do what we need to do. So what does that look like on a day-to-day basis, both preventatively and correctively? Like, is it like, do you do it during lineup? Do you do it during office hours? How does, how, what does it look like? So people have a kind of, we have to do it every, like every moment of every day and every interaction. And the minute you hear, 
you know, somebody on the line say something that, you know, puts, you know, people in a box around them, you call it out on the spot. Yeah. Like you, I, I have learned that it is active and ongoing every second of the day. It's not like, here's five minutes to talk about how we're going to be better. It's everything that we do. We try to do better. We hold everybody around us into account. When we learn about something, we listen to it, we take it in and we respond. And, and sometimes it changes the entire way we have to do things. So it doesn't, it doesn't really look one way. You can't like look at it and see it. It's a cumulative uh, second by second, instance by instance, interaction by interaction, commitment to do what we need to do. And I'm sure that's got to take empowering people who maybe in previous jobs or a previous time didn't feel like they could uh, speak up because they were told that they mm-hmm. were just lucky to have a job there, that their opinion didn't matter. And I mean, yeah. we're not, none of this is going to be okay until the most you know, vulnerable person in any given system is, you know, has as much right to speak up as, as the people above them. And exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to hope and, you know, and I know New Orleans has been through just you know, unfathomable, um, just, you know, pain and, and, and circumstance and has, has come to some real reckoning points, um, you know, just all over the map. And, you know, do you see or do you feel that people in that city in particular are, you know, are, are doing the work or are they, you know, what, what is that looking like uh, right now? What, cause I know, I know right now everybody's just kind of in triage mode trying to survive during all everything that's going on. Yeah. Right. Um, honestly, I'm not sure. I've been, I'm so committed. Like I am staying in my own lane and, you know, evaluating my own bias and my own, like, my own mind and how, how I've worked in the system, how the systems work for me and how I, as an individual, as a person, as a member of this community and as an employer, somebody in a workplace, um, there's so much stuff I need to do personally that I, that's what I'm, that's what I'm concentrating on. Yeah, and have, and having a public face to this sometimes can be really difficult. I, I was talking with, you know, a, a mutual friend of ours who is a restaurant near you, and saying that they had, you know, very publicly taken a stand in support of Black Lives Matter, and had, you know, paid a price for that from from their clientele, and mm-hmm. you know, and and saying like, well, we absolutely know we're doing the right thing, and we are, you know, hemorrhaging money in this time. I, I know that a lot of our friends have mm-hmm. uh, you know, participated in, uh, you know, action to preserve, uh, you know, women's right to choose and, mm-hmm. you know, ha- have run up against that. And, you know, taking a public stance can have a real financial impact. So mm-hmm. how do you sort of weigh the decision? Because it's not just you, it's, you know, the livelihood of, of your whole staff. Like, how do you, how do you right. act? <laughs> I mean, if I'm not willing to stand up for my staff, then what am I even doing? Period. Yeah. Period. That's all. I mean, that, that is it. Yeah. Like I will, I will do anything for these people. I will, you know, I mean, I don't, I, like, I don't even know how to put it into words. I feel yeah. so strongly about it. 
Yeah, it's it's an. Inc- I mean, to me, like racists don't get cake. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. If you, if, if you, you just don't deserve cake or yeah. or biscuits or a hangover bowl or frozen lemonade or any of these 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 things. And you know, and again, I'm thinking of these these you know really vulnerable moments that I've had. You know, sitting in your in your restaurant and and the nourishment that I that I feel and the nourishment that I know that so many people I know who have been there in, in vulnerable moments or moments of celebration have felt and it's all these things I wanted to eat and it's incredibly, you know, valuable food that can you imagine like Kelly of of you know, twenty ten, twenty eleven, like looking at the kind of food you serve now, which is you know, again, kind of the stuff I'd rather be eating than just about anything. Being able to look right. at food, would you, what would you have thought then about the food that you are doing now? I would have turned my nose up at the food that I cook now. Like to think that my career has led me to a place where I really can nerd out for two years about a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> Good chocolate just... chip cookie. It's a great chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that. for... For the first 20 years of my career, I cooked for me and I cooked to prove something to myself. And I didn't think about like I wanted to knock people's socks off with dessert, but I didn't think I didn't think about the real weight of feeding people until recently in my life. And so now to just be in a place where we can cook really good food that people are really excited to eat and we can have fun doing it and keep things that simple. Yeah. Like it's the most rewarding food I've ever been a part of. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you like one of those moments when I was in there and I was um, eating a, one of your fried chicken sandwich and I was, you know, I've, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast. Like I was, uh, I was at a really, really scary point where I was feeling suicidal and mm-hmm. I was just trying, I was in the middle of a panic spiral that had lasted well over a month. And I was, I had been in New Orleans for a little over a week. I actually had my husband come down during it because I was a little bit, because I was there for work and I was actually there <laughs> facilitating mental health talks when I was sure. in a really very bad state uh, my, myself. And I was not super able to take care of myself and eat. And I somehow thought like, if I can, you know, get Willa Jean and I can sit down there and have this, this, this chicken sandwich with a gravitational pull to it. Like, and, and it was at a time when I was not really able to eat a whole lot of things because of like gut condition, which, you know, still remains, but is better now than it was then. And I thought like, I don't, I need to get this particular food into my body and then maybe I'll be okay. And it just, it grounded me so much. And I know that's a lot of, uh, sort of heaviness to put on a chicken sandwich, but it, it was what I needed in a way that like, like, uh, you know, seven course chef's tasting menu would really, really not have done the thing or, you know, the, the same thing. Something made with tweezers right. wouldn't have had that. And like, and I've right. seen that play out over and over. I mean, you, uh, you grounded Beyonce when she came. Can we, can we talk for a second about how uh, you built the place as a Beyonce trap? I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I just, it was an experiment in the power of uh, suggestion. And, you know, it took a little while, but somehow it worked. 
Yeah, well, can yeah. we talk about the when she actually came in? Oh yeah, there's you know <laughs> there's bef- before and after Katrina, and there's before and after Beyonce in my life. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think I was seeing it on social media that uh, Beyonce and Jay Z were eating in Willie Jean, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> I think maybe you hooked them up with one of everything on the menu. And uh, I did my best, yeah. And uh, can we talk for a second about the approach with uh, with the cornbread? Yeah, I um, I insisted that I take food out to the table because Beyonce and Jay-Z. Um, <laughs> and I accidentally, and it, it's one of the greatest and most awkward moments of my life, um, bowed to Beyonce <laughs> with cornbread. Um, and it, That's what it, it Come on. Yeah, I just bowed. That's all I did. I didn't know what else to do. So. Genuflect. <laughs> I, yeah. I yeah. think that's just the actual human response. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that I mean, is- you think about you think about it all the time. Like, what do you do when you meet people who you really admire in the world? Like, you think, oh, if I met this person, this is what I would say. Or like, all of that goes out of the window the minute it happens. And so sometimes you just bow. That's that's it. I, there was that video within the last couple of years. People were laughing at this woman who got super giddy talking to Robert Smith, and I was like, mm-hmm. I would not like. I've met a lot of famous people, musicians, whatever, and I've been able to like stay cool with it. I would yeah. lose my shit if I met Robert Smith. Like. Yeah. I, I always think about like what would I want to like make him. I'd want to make him like an incredible, like ridiculous layer cake. I actually probably would have you make the cake for, <laughs> for this, like this, like Alice in Wonderland goth Tim Burton towering cake and teacups and <laughs> you know mm-hmm. we all we all have our our things where we can just like lose ourselves and and right. be happy and. You know, I have seen you over the course of, you know, the last year or so just be happier and happier in your skin. And I want to talk about like taking the time to really not just do that version of self care that you and I both indulge in that is just masochism and we've been rewarded for it in times past. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you work so hard. Oh, good for you. Then you get that endorphin rush of some, you know, your employer or whoever it is telling you're doing a good job and the cycle repeats uh, to your own detriment. And all of a sudden you're just a bag of skin on the floor. Um, but I, right. but really like taking time to take care of yourself is such a different process and it's, it's, quiet and it's painful and uh, how did Mm -hmm. you decide to do this and how did you learn to do this uh I mean I'm still learning but you know first things first um at some point I had to acknowledge and admit how unhappy and unhealthy I was Mm -hmm. um which is probably the hardest part of all of it yeah yeah and then, you know, having this, like, just insane reckoning with myself uh, and being honest with myself about where I was, what I was doing, trying to figure out why I was doing it and what what was it really bringing me? Because I obviously wasn't happy. Yeah. And I obviously was, you know, on a path to kill myself very quickly. 
And the um, thing is, on paper, you know, people could have looked at you and been like, wow, you have this wildly successful restaurant and a cookbook, you know, on the way and stuff. And on paper, it looks like everything's coming up Kelly. Right. I am, but here it's, you know, nothing, nothing actually is. And I feel like, you know, it's all an illusion and, you know, the whole fake it till you make it bullshit. And, <laughs> you know, like all, all of that was real. Like, you know, even with this book, I remember, you know, a bunch of, a ton of people had asked me to write one and I finally was starting to, to think about it and wonder like if I did write a book, what would it look like? Mm -hmm. And I could never answer the question of like what my voice or what my knowledge or experience could contribute to, you know, the world. Like yes. nobody needs to hear from me. It's all an illusion. I don't actually know what the fuck I'm doing 99% yeah. of the time. Yeah. It takes and so valuing yourself, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um so for me, it was slowly accepting that I was pursuing things and working in a way that did not make me happy and that things that seemed to be um, sort of the bonuses or the awards or whatever, the, the PR, whatever it is that come with that kind of hustle. Yeah did not fulfill me, did not bring anything to my life. Like, I know it, it looks like, and people think they're working for this, and it's probably really uh, horrible of me to feel like it's not worth it for me personally because because it did happen. You know what I mean? Like, no, now that it's happened, now that I have it, I realize that that's not what I should have been working towards. I mean, it's... I, I saw I saw you with the medal around your neck and I was so, so happy for you because I was hoping that it would mean that you understood the esteem that other people uh, have for you. But I, I know from, you know, it doesn't <laughs> always trickle inside, like it stops at a layer outside of you and you, you sort of think like you're second guessing, like, oh, they're just doing that to be nice. They just, you know, but really, you know. Right. You know, it's right. like, I'm going to find out that, <laughs> right. that I'm not worth that kind of thing. And, you know, external validation does not compute all the time. And especially if you're somebody who's been told all along that you shouldn't feel so great about yourself right. that and, and has that, you know, depressive inner critic or whatever it is telling you, yep. you know, all of that stuff. Um, so what was the, the turning point in, in realizing like, yes, I, I want to, I need to, I can do this book. And also how'd you get, I'd love to hear about how you ended up with the incredible Kate Headings as your co-author. Oh man. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, the book is done and it's written and I still don't quite know <laughs> why I did it. Um, I also, I mean, it's, a, it's that same place that, you know, all the fuel from spike cons. It's sort of like, here's one of the biggest challenges we can put in front of you to, to write this thing and stand behind, like, you know, to complete a book is no it's small task. Yeah. It's a really hard. And so I love a challenge. And, you know, we kept talking about it and people were really excited about it. And, you know, things with Kate Headings. I met Kate Headings at uh, Food and Wine years and years ago and just loved her immediately. Yeah. And 
when I first started talking about writing a book in a serious way and talking about doing a proposal, I called Kate Hennings and I said, I'm thinking about doing this. I would love to do it with you. And this is her and, first book as well. Correct. Yeah. This and uh, she was not able to do it. What? She, um, she, it was like right when uh, I think Nilu was taking over Food and Wine yeah. and everything was sort of like, ooh, what's happening? Yeah. Um, so she didn't feel like she could say yes to the project because, right. you know, obviously there was so much stuff in the air and so much change happening, uh, in, in her professional life that she didn't, she didn't want to say yes and then not be able to commit to it. Right. Yeah. Um, totally understandable. So I went about a proposal with another writer and, um, you know, worked with them for a while and we just decided it wasn't like, it wasn't taking the right tone. Yeah. Um, for either one of us and um, went back to the starting point. Um, and the very next day, uh, Food and Wine announced that they were moving to Birmingham. Part of it. Part of it. <laughs> yeah. Part of it was moving to Birmingham. But yeah. And so, it. yeah. That, I saw that news as soon as I got to work that day. Oof, yeah. Um, and the first thing I thought of is like, what's Kate doing? <laughs> because it was I mean it was the, literally the day after I realized I needed to find a writer find a find a co a co-pilot for this project um so Kate Headings and I talked that day and here we are two what two years later or something like that oh wow and then and then you have the incredible Oriana Corin on uh mm -hmm. i feel like i'm I calling together band and oriana corin on the you know on the drums yeah. <laughs> except it's you on the that's drums. what it feels like yeah yeah and and their aesthetic is so tremendous and uh, i mean this, mm -hmm. this i can't wait for people to see this because it really is yeah. it's a vision and it is luscious and it is um unapologetically queer in various places and yeah yeah, yeah it and, really is and the language of it is it's, it's both masterful and colloquial because I mean, the, one of the first things I noted was that you were talking through flour and then saying like, don't make yourself nuts over getting every single mm -hmm. kind of flour. And I immediately sent that to my colleague, Margaret Ebai, who, uh, you know, was already a, you know, a huge fan of, of yours from the day that you came in and made biscuits for us at extra crispy. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and Jessica is a huge fan of New Orleans and a few. Um, and I was saying like, look, look, this is incredible because there are so many, I mean, there's some really great baking books out there, but so many of them are, are so sort of precious and like, oh, you must have this kind of flower for this. And you're a real, and, and, and you're, you're a realist about it. And right. Um, but I think that's the, the most astounding thing for me about Southern baking yeah. is that it's not precious. Yeah. Despite the brand of Southern baking having become this very precious, uh, very stereotypical image of what you think of, that is not at all where any of this comes from. Yeah. So how do you write a book that says, here's like the idea of a foundation of like what I think is the best outcome for this, but you literally do whatever you want. I think it comes back to, you know, we're, uh, you know, in 2011 at this fancy ass dinner in a fancy ass home with with uh, you know fancy ass people and uh and, you know and mary madeline in a boa <laughs> in a feather boa and, you know and I'm, I'm just like you know agog at this gorgeous 
garden district, you know, mansion. And it's, and I, I'm just like gobsmacked that this whole thing came together and you made a hummingbird cake that is like this incredibly, you know, and it could have been some, you know, fancy French thing or whatever, but it, like it is this hummingbird cake, which is colloquial and artful and 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 it, it's it's got a humility to it while being you know really like you know precise and and it's i think so much of the stuff is is sort of deceptively simple like it's actually like incredibly sophisticated <laughs> but, right. but it comes back to that like you know you you could have uh you know you know, I saw the, the, I loved your, your desserts at August. It, it was like, I remember you served, uh, actually slightly tortured me with, I had, <laughs> I had, uh, <laughs> I, I had, um, spent the day, I'd met Isaac and Amanda Toops for the first time that day and they bombarded me at lunch and I had a reservation at August that I was almost going to like try to get out of and I realized that Mike Bellotta was not going to let me get out of that. And, no. and I came in cr with my husband like crying mercy, like, please, we got, you know, killed by two, by the tubes earlier today please be very gentle like you know we wanted to switch the reservation and stuff but we couldn't and got absolutely <laughs> bombarded by food and uh, and and at the end you did not let me off easy either you said <laughs> you sent out a carnival basically i still remember like all this sort of like spun sugar and, and everything and it was it was just the most artful beautiful like playground of of, of sugar and joy on the plate i was like i love you and goddamn you <laughs> at the same time yeah <laughs> No, yeah, I didn't. I didn't understand restraint at that point in my life. I'll say that much. I have never felt closer to death than I did that night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had ordered the vegetarian uh, like tasting menu just sort of again with the caveat of like, please, I just want it to be you know, something light. Uh, right. At the same time, I do not regret a mouthful because what you sent out, I it just it was such a beautiful play of all of this. But at the same time, like there was some like you know, some fancy wizardry afoot with the, you know, the sponge sugar and, 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 you know, and it's, it's, it's such technique and is all this. And, uh, I tend to think that the stuff like the hummingbird cake is just as complicated and just as, and, and the, bis the biscuit technique is, is just as complicated. I remember sitting there in yeah. awe as you're just like, what, I'm not throwing anything. And you're like showing me your folding technique for the biscuits with the, <laughs> And like it's you know an ex extraordinary thing, but now that I can see in the book how it's written out, it seems like an infinitely more achievable thing. It was like I will never make be able to make exactly as great a biscuits as Kelly Fields, but I feel like I can see through the matrix. Sure you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure you can. <laughs> so you play still like you, you made that yeah, I'm still open. Open. <laughs> Oh yeah, I remember that. I, I was not sober at that point. Yeah, because I had done a demo before that where we were drinking, and I believe there was bourbon involved at the extra crispy. Uh, generally, I, I don't remember that specific yeah. day, but yes, I'm sure we yeah. drank bourbon <laughs> during the day. Yeah. Sure. I feel like there was some tipsiness going on. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> How did any of us sort of live through like any of this excess? I think we ended up paying the price for our bodies to some degree. I mean, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, my, my job prior to that gave me an ulcer <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, and I have a, you know, this gut condition and stuff that's related to the ulcer and, and all of this. And, and, you know, while in one way, like getting sick, you know, so 
folks who don't know, uh, endometriosis and an ulcer and SIBO. Uh, and I had to have surgery for the endometriosis, like having to take time off and take care of myself. I was absolutely terrified of it. I was terrified to slow down and I didn't give myself enough time to properly heal. And I went back to work too quickly and I was so, so exhausted. Um, but it was this self-imposed masochism that, you know, I, I, you know, I think being in quarantine has really, you know, made me realize like, once again, like, okay, apparently this is the rock I keep having to push up the hill is taking time. Mm-hmm. And, and you've had downtime recently. If, if we can talk about this, you had surgery yeah. recently. Sure. And I know, again. and I know that for you, even imagining taking time off to recover and letting other people help you. That's a, that's a hurdle. Mm-hmm. Can we talk through how you decided? That is the hurdle. Yeah. How did, how did you get there? Uh, I really didn't have much of a choice. Um, yeah. You know, I've worked for my entire life to be independent and take care of myself. Even, even if I was unaware how miserably I was failing at it. Yeah. Um, and sort of, you know, not need anything from anybody. Yeah. Right. That was like always the mentality. Yeah. Um, and that's changed over the years, but this year, you know, 2021 <laughs> to literally break everything open. So, um, I had to take six weeks off of work and have surgery and put people in my life together who could literally do anything that I might have needed and allow that to happen. Yeah. And, I, um, and learn how to really receive that kind of help and, um, Ooh, that shit's hard. It's so it's, it's really, really hard. And, you know, I'm, you know, my mother died of COVID three weeks ago today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and even during this, I was, I, you know, I was, uh, like, you know, messaging with a friend saying like, I'm beating myself up that I'm not being productive enough that I'm letting people down by my brain is jello with chunks in it right now. It is taking right. me forever to do stuff right now. And it was already like ADHD brain and then it was pandemic brain and now it's grief brain and grief body. And I'm yeah. sitting here telling myself that like, Hey, I, you know, it, you know, it's been three weeks, uh, you know, and I, I should have, I should be feeling better. But then, you know, the trauma leading up to that, she was mm-hmm. isolated in a nursing home for, you know, since the beginning of the lockdown. And then, you know, I had to say goodbye to her via FaceTime and I don't know if she was conscious or not. And then, oh. you know, had to listen to her ashes being interred over the phone and hearing my dad and my sister cry in a state, you know, 700 miles away. And, and still there's this, you know, and, and that is, uh, and there are millions of us going through this utterly preventable thing and still finding this thing in my head that's saying like, Hey, you really should have written more over the past few weeks. You know, you should, you should be past some of this. You should be able to just be able to like, not be teary all the time and giving myself permission to, to grieve and to bake. Right. And I've been baking a lot of pan, uh, panda compagna <laughs> during, yeah. 
during this and just permission to sit and stare into space or pet my dogs. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's hard. <laughs> it's hard friend. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, yeah. are you like, what are you doing to take care? Can, do you have like mobility at this point? Can you do a range of yeah. arms and all that? And I can't, I can't lift anything over 10 pounds still yeah um but this week i can start back with like cardio i can i can technically lift my arms above my head now but i can't really reach yeah um but i mean i think you know listening to you and your experience and how you're feeling the thing that really helped me was having people around me that threw the word should out of the window yeah oh god talk about that because what does that mean to you? Because there's like, you know, you should be doing this or you should feel this way. Like I, I'm, I, you and I are sort of the same and, you know, we should, we feel like we should feel this way or we should be feel. And, uh, there are no rules anymore. The rules are out the window. Oh, man. And the only thing I should do is listen to my body and do whatever it says. Yeah. And, and being around, you know, I had, uh, Tiffany, and Martine and my mom forcing me to do only that. Yeah. And like picking three people that <laughs> one are really eager and amazing and generous to care. <laughs> and two, you know, sort of like they band together and really forced me to do exactly what I needed to do, which is absolutely nothing for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that. I mean, it's, it's that impulse that I think we tend to have as, as caretakers. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've been lucky enough to have people, you know, and it's such a weird circumstance because like you physically needed some people around you because you couldn't do, uh, stuff. And yeah. this grief is amorphous. I mean, you know, sitting mm -hmm. in my apartment thinking the only thing sort of different here is there are flowers you know, because I, you know, you can't yeah. go hug people, you can't do whatever, because my needs are not, a, you know, a physical thing that other people can do. I mean, people were incredibly kind mm -hmm. and like, dropped off things on my doorstep. Uh, my friend Adair sent cookies. Uh, my friend Coop, who's been on the front lines of COVID working at Mount Sinai, like brought over stew and like, you know, dropped it and, 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 and stuff. But it's this, this sort of amorphous thing because yeah. nobody nobody knows what to do and you know, right. that's you know it, and that's that's the thing it's like how do how do we convert ourselves how do we take you know how do we take that care and to be removed like for you like you know the thing that well the, where so where i was going with this is like I, there were a lot of people who um so i you know i do a lot of work around mental health in the industry and there were a lot of people who said like you know hey you've done a lot of caretaking of other people now it's your turn to receive and learning how to receive is uh yeah that's a hard one <laughs> it's the hardest it's so hard i mean you, you chose a life of, of service you know it mm -hmm. and a sort of service and like ministry through biscuits and uh you know, through a, you know, the, the Yes Ma'am Foundation and all that. And, and I've known that for people I know who work in, in restaurants, um, 
you know, they, they find so much purpose through feeding people or being able to cook for large amounts of people. And with restaurants shut down for a lot of people, that's been a hard thing to do. And a lot of people have been able to spring into action, feed, you know, tons of people and stuff. But for other people, it's not mm-hmm. feasible. Maybe they can't go out and do this because they have an immunocompromised person. Maybe, you know, right. they have kids to watch. Maybe, you know, all of these different things. And being um, separated from the thing that brings their life meaning is such a difficult thing and to find in the absence of that like what fills you so how did how did you occupy yourself like once the drugs were off like where you're sort of in a haze what did you do to fill the hours um i went on a lot of walks once i could start doing that oh i've been walking and just like (laughs) learned how to be wherever i was really yeah. And to sort of let go of the work and, and concentrate. I spent a lot of time thinking about how much time and energy I have used and continued to use trying to control things that are completely out of my control. Yeah. Um, and sort of, you know, use part of the past six weeks on like, how do I let that go? Yeah. How do I not obsess? And like, you know, I feel like energy and time is, is a ration now. Yeah. And how do I not just waste it all on something that literally I can't do anything about because it's so easy to do. Yeah. Um, But also just like the exercise and practice of allowing people to care for me and show me the, the ways in which they're willing to do that is like one of the greatest things I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Humbling is is the word I yeah big time big time yeah I keep I I um I lost it last week um I was watching the DNC with some uh with some friends in my little pod we we sort of developed a little pod because we realized we just can't do this and there are there are neighbors and uh we were watching it and like Joe Biden was talking about expressing uh, empathy and sympathy for people who have lost someone uh to covid or right. you know and like and during this time you don't even need to have lost the person to covid it's just doing grieving in isolation and not being able to go about those rituals of it and i just yeah. I, I i i am not a person who really cries in front of people all that much you know right. i i i'm gonna make other people cry <laughs> but you know i can't always do it for myself because i think no i have to be in control here and i have to be the source of comfort and i have to do all this and I just, right. I, I was with safe enough people that I just let myself lose it. And, you know, Douglas, my husband, like came behind me, um, and put his hands on my, my shoulders because I was sitting in a chair. But then my friend Jen, who she's, she's so, you've met her. Like she, uh, Jen Yu, and she takes sort of this hard line of like, I am, you know, I am alpha and I am, you know, sort of all of these things like raised in this like very hard ass Korean family where like emotion, no, and all this stuff. And she mm-hmm. came, and put her head against my leg and sat there like, like one of my, and I know this is a weird thing to say, but like, like, like Augie, my, my dog does in that sort of cuddly yeah. kind of, of way. And like, you know, she, she and, and her husband, my husband, and I like all live with our dogs in a very, very similar way. So I'm not in any way like disparaging when I say this, cause it, to me, it's the most comforting thing in the whole world. And she just leaned right. on me like that and just like, let me sort of like pat her head and, and it was just the most, compassionate and incredible thing and yeah and and she just kind of let me pour my 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 pain in 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 there and and like sort of without saying a word just with 
the, just her presence. And it was, to me, it was so moving. And it was just, I don't know, I needed that in a way that I can't, you know, I didn't, I had no idea how badly I needed that. And, you know, right. and, and along with that, like I was sitting on the couch last night crying and the dogs just came and surrounded me. <laughs> in a way mm-hmm. that they just knew. And you, you've discovered the joy of having a dog. Yeah, yeah, I really have. And, you know, especially like the past six weeks since surgery and like, you know, everything that's come with it. Like, you know, you and I have talked, like I've become this weepy person all the time Yeah, for the first time in my life. But, you know, it's amazing how your dogs know. Oh, they know. They definitely know. And like when I walked into my house after surgery and my dog was so excited to see me. And when he gets very excited, he doesn't behave the best and he jumps and he gets, and he got to me and he stopped and he sat right down. Oh, he knew he couldn't jump. And he knew, like he knew instantly that he couldn't do that with me. Yeah. And has been so sweet and so comforting and so amazing the whole time. Yeah. They, they really, I mean, the dogs, they, it was so funny. I looked over and like, first he was, uh, he was sort of like putting his little, his like legs around her, like, but in a, and, and sort of was grooming her face and she was grooming him. And then they both sort of like put their like paws on me and were kind of like sort of nudging and licking me because they just knew. Uh (laughs) And yeah, yeah, there's nothing like that. And, you know, I'm thinking of the other sort of things of comfort that I've, I've done, um, you know, during the pandemic in general, and then, you know, specifically after my mother's death. And I've been learning Welsh this, <laughs> this whole time. It's, it's, Amazing. it's so, so different than English. And you know, that should be mm-hmm. obvious about another language, but like, even just the way you have to move your mouth to make some of the sounds, like this double L goes like, uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like, and you roll your R's and all this, and it just lets me outside of myself. And it's been a great anxiety reliever. And, you know, I've been baking, I know everybody's baking bread, but like, I, I right. didn't really eat with me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, you know, all these things were in short supply. So my, when my mother-in-law died, I, I got her cookbooks and they had this Julia Child and Dory Greenspan uh, baking book. And it was like, oh, through for so you. Good. Yeah. So I made this uh, panda campagna and, and I, you know, spent all this time making a little vein and like my first tea loaves, like they were okay, they were whatever. And, and I made one this week that was just like, oh yeah. And maybe the next one will be crappy and it's okay. I mean, That's the way bread goes though. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, long, long walks, Greenwood Cemetery has been really amazing for me and then um you know some in upstate new york where we have a place and we just see no one <laughs> and uh right and that's that's been really really healing and binge watching hannibal and shit's creek <laughs> two awesome. very polar opposite shows <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like what are the, the so you said walking can you play the drums now um i haven't i haven't been able to do it and also like i haven't been able to um have lessons since the pandemic started so that's just sort of on hold i think i could probably practice now mm-hmm. but it's still like um i haven't really been allowed to get my heart rate up uh past a certain point or get super sweaty which is very difficult in new orleans <laughs> um yes. until very recently cuz i still had so many stitches and um healing to do so just now the world's starting to kind of open back up to possibilities for me so yeah how i'm we... gonna very intentionally very intentionally decide what 
what's going to be sort of incorporated back into my life. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of like an emotional elimination diet, you know, weird way. Like when they're trying to figure out yeah. if you have a food allergy or intolerance, like you strip everything out and then reintroduce things and see what works and what doesn't. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I have to believe there is a life after pandemic. I mean, I, you mm-hmm. know, if not, then we all just walk into the sea right now. And, but so yes. I have to believe it. And I keep thinking like, what are we going to move forward with? Am I ever going to wear heels again? Do I ever bother with wearing heels yet or foundation or, you know, a bra or, you know, any of these things? Do I ever wear something that is uncomfortable again? Like, why would I now that I live? I mean, I've, I put jeans on for the first time oh, this week and now I'm questioning why I ever wore them. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking like, when I think about, I think about you sort of like you have a kind of uniform you wear. And I think of that as, you know, I, I think of you in like a collared shirt and, 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 mm-hmm. and like, and, and very much like a, you know, a look that you have established and, you know, occasionally in a, like in a gorgeous tux or gorgeous custom suit or something mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. yeah, what do we, what do we leave in the past? I mean, for the industry, like, what do you, I've been asking, you know, chefs and restaurateurs, restaurateurs, this, I was messed up on that word, restaurateurs, um, you know, moving forward, what is, what is the change that you want to see? What gets left in the past? What moves forward? Um, the, the biggest thing I have right now, and it's sort of something we're, tr- we've been trying since we have opened back up, um, since we shut down for, for the virus is the elimination of any sort of ranking system. Oh yeah. And the elimination of and and because we're, you know, at 30% capacity of what we were, it's easy to try this now is that the territory of stations is also gone. Mhm. And so if you're here working, you know, and you walk by a station when an order comes in, you just you just pick it up. You just, mm-hmm. you just do it. It doesn't matter if it's your station or not. They're all our stations. And that's even, that goes as far as even the front of the house versus the back of the house. Like that is eliminated. And my dining room managers know all the kitchen stations and, you know, the people that are in the kitchen, a lot of them know how to work front of the house now. Yeah. So we're literally just doing whatever we need to do just to keep going. Yeah. And I love it. Like the energy in the kitchen has changed the, you know, the territorial sort of, I'm not going to look past this station or past my quote unquote, that's not my job. Like all of that is gone. Like we're just here to work. Yeah. And I hope that it is something that can continue uh, in the future. Cause we're just like, we're having a lot of fun with it. The, the very seriousness is gone. The, like the, the threat of not getting things done fast enough or right, you know, all that feels, uh, feels like it doesn't really have a place here. Finally. What do you want to see from customers? Oh, I mean, I want to see any sort of acknowledgement or, you know, I even, I, I said it even before, before any of this pandemic, before COVID was a thing, but if people could care as much, about a person who's making chicken as they care about how the chicken was raised, mm-hmm. I think we'll be okay. I yeah. think that's a really good starting place to, to, to level the, 
the playing field yes. as a interaction, you know? Yeah. I'm there with you. I mean, I really, I, you know, I've said this so many times, but I really, you know, I need to see, uh, you know, a, a system where yes, the, you know, the chef, you know, the head chef or whatever like that is important and stuff like that. But I want to see the acknowledgement of, of the work of all the other folks. And mm-hmm. like, and I, and I feel like, you know, I, I have gotten to in Willa Jean, like, you know, you, you make a big point of like bringing people out of the back uh, to, you know, introduce them to me and, and stuff. So I know who they are. So I know who some of these people yeah. are because like to me, so much of the measure of a really great chef is, um, you know, so, some people are very territorial, like this person will always work with me. And I'm like, no, it's when that other person goes and like starts out something of their own. It's, it's I think it's like having that kind of tutelage and having, right. you know, end up having a diaspora of like the people who all work together at one place, like going on and do, doing stuff. I think that, like there's nothing but positive mm-hmm. from that. Yeah. No, I think everybody that everything everybody that's been here that has gone on to do their own thing is that's exactly the whole that to me is the whole point. Yeah. And if they can use what what my dream was was to open this place, if they can use that as a stepping stone to reach their own dream and I can help with that in any way, like that is my job. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And none of it, I mean I mean that's the thing, like none of it none of it has anything to do with me. Like, you know, it's, it's about the people that make up this place and they're far more important. And then they, they contribute so much more on the daily to this place than I ever could alone. So once you realize it's not about you and you're not cooking for you and you're not, you know, flexing for you, like <laughs> everything changes. And my job is just now is like, how do I make the people who choose to be here shine in the way that they, they want to. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that it's, you know, for all of us that it's, it's taken so much pain to get to this point, but like, I really do have to have hope from it. And I'm really excited yeah. to see an Instagram blow up of when people start making things from your book. What is like, what are the couple of dishes oh, that you hope are gonna just, that, that like close your eyes and you imagine like people across the country or the world, like making this particular thing out of your book, what is that? What is that thing? Uh, part of me wants it to be the warm chocolate pudding because warm chocolate pudding just needs to be known. <laughs> like that it's not this thing out of this box that you stir together and then keep cold. Like when you eat it hot off the stove, like it's, it is one of my most favorite things in the world to have like fresh, hot chocolate pudding. It's so good. I love that. Um, but I mean, I think any of the pies, like thinking about people across, across the, the world making like my aunt, uh, my aunt Jean's like lemon chiffon pie, like that just, that makes me so tickled to think about how much she would love that and how important of a pie that was for me growing up and going to her house and visiting. And that pie was always one of the characters in, in her house. Um, and is always something we sat down and like bonded over and thinking about people across the globe doing that with that pie the same way that she and I did is just, it's incredible to think about. Well, I think I know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> and, yeah. and say if people wanted to get a copy of, of this book or get some of your, your nice hot biscuits or anything like that, where, where would they find you, Kelly Fields? 
I mean, I hope that they can find this book in any place that they love to shop for books in their local community. Um, you can order it like a signed copy from the Willa Jean website. Um, and you can order cookies and stuff from Goldbelly mm -hmm. to be shipped overnight to your house. And we are working on getting frozen cookie dough and frozen biscuits for you to bake at home on that gold belly site before too long. Oh my god, this is what's going to heal the world. Well, my dogs clearly agree <laughs> that they are. Yeah, I'm excited that they're excited. Yeah, they, they very much are. And, uh, you know, so if somebody were to, to, to roll up uh, to um, your, I always, I always get the warehouse district and the central business district uh, mixed up, but you are, which one is it? I think we're the CB, I think we're the CBD. Okay. I don't really know where the lines are. <laughs> we're just right over here at Gerard and O'Keefe. That's really it. But if you happen to be in New Orleans and in, 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 <laughs> and Augie is so excited about this, do you make dog treats? Are there dog treats? <laughs> yes. There are, there's also a recipe for um, Kenny's favorite dog biscuits in the biscuit chapter. <laughs> There are there are dog biscuits included. This is so important. Um, but say, you, but somebody can come in, roll up masked, of course, or something like that, and uh, mm -hmm. and 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 come and get some really delicious food uh, from you right now. It's yep. like they can get a food, <laughs> knowing yep. knowing, and maybe a t shirt too. <laughs> t shirt, a book, any of the things they want. All of the things. Oh, Kelly, uh, just I don't know. Thank you doesn't doesn't cover it <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for your time oh and if people want to find you on uh instagram twitter all that kind of stuff where can they find you uh i'm on instagram at kelly fields mm -hmm. and uh willa g new orleans okay and um twitter i think i'm kr kr field yeah or Chef Kelly Field. I I have two because one kept getting hacked and I was going to delete it. And now I don't know what, like, now, I, like, what do you do? Do you delete it? I don't know. So, so I have two. I have two over there. Find, find the real Kelly Fields and follow and make biscuits and make pie and just make the world around you a better place. And yep. Thank you, Kelly Fields. And we're going to... We're going to do the outro now. <laughs> and I want to thank okay. my guest today, Kelly Fields. And, you know, we'll, we will drop all of the links um, in, in all of this. Please, I can't say enough things about this. I don't think I've been more excited about a cookbook uh, this year. This is such an incredible cookbook season uh, coming up, um, like with you, with Grand Baby Cakes, with Nick Sharma's uh, mm -hmm. book, like just I, you know, I would be remiss if I did. There's so many out there. I should shut up now in case I miss so, one of them. But please go and, and support uh, all of these folks who have really put their, their heart and soul and their time in into this. And, you know, I, I mentioned up top that this is, is part of Food & Wine Pro, which is a part of um, both the magazine and the website. And also, once we can recommence uh, in-person events, that as well, where we're really talking about um, the people in the industry and what they're going through and really showing the humanity of, of those folks. And um, you can find that at foodandwine.com slash fwpro. And also, you can sign up for the newsletter, which is written by our wonderful editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, and back by me and by Osette Babur, who is our associate restaurant editor who pulls together all the news you need to know for the week that affects the industry. We also have a mantra 
from our, uh, our our beloved Kelsey Youngman from the Test Kitchen, who is also a certified meditation instructor, and oh, and we share her wisdom that she shared at our Monday all staff meeting. So get some of that goodness into your life. And uh, with communal table, you know, if you're just listening to this as a one off or something like that, consider subscribing because like we. You know, I love these conversations that we get to have, and, and I'm so lucky to have the guests that I do. And, you know, in order to keep doing this, we need people to listen and like and subscribe and share all of that kind of stuff. And it really, really helps people find us in the algorithm of your favorite podcast, thingamajig, whatever it it happens to be. So you can leave those stars and, and leave comments or, you know, share it with a friend on social. It really, really goes a long way to uh, help us keep this conversation going. And a huge thanks to Antara Sinha, who is our new producer, who has really just like taken this and run with it. I'm so uh, grateful for, uh, to her for, we're, we're learning as we go and she's doing such a kick-ass job of it. And thank you, Antara and the whole food and wine team and from Kelly and from me. Take good care of yourself until the next time.